I kept my appeal connected to the movement and my, and my activities as political. I, I wasn't fighting my case on a criminal level. I wasn't fighting my case as a regular criminal appeal. I fought my case using the criminal law, fighting a political appeal, a political case. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Keith Malik Washington, a longtime imprisoned advocate inside the Texas system, recently issued a call for outside supporters to participate in this year's Fight Toxic Prisons Conference in Gainesville, Florida. In his statement, he reflects on the important role that outside environmental support played in fighting against the toxic conditions in his prison and the potential for new alliances. He writes, Peace and blessings, sisters and brothers. Wow, how time flies. Four years ago, I was at the PAC unit in Navasota, Texas when I discovered that the prison unit had high levels of arsenic in the water supply. The oppressors at the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality called me a liar. The fascist pigs who operate the Texas Department of Criminal Injustice retaliated. If it wasn't for the mutual aid and solidarity of a few dedicated free world supporters, the toxic water would have been ignored. Sisters and brothers, people of color are disproportionately housed in prisons all across the United States of America. Many of these prisons are plagued by toxic water, black mold, radiation, or, as in the case of many prisons in Pennsylvania, they are located in close proximity to toxic sites, such as coal ash depositories, which contaminate water and air breathed by the human beings forcibly housed in these toxic prisons. Contact fighttoxicprisons at gmail.com. I am personally calling on people of color in Atlanta, Georgia, and Mobile and Birmingham, Alabama. I'm calling on folks in South and North Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, and my home state of Texas to come down to Gainesville, Florida, June 14th through 17th, 2019, and come see what the campaign to fight toxic prisons is about. Our sisters and brothers who are incarcerated need more of our people to take an active interest in these environmental movements. This convergence in Gainesville is not just for anarchists, it is for human beings who believe that together we can save our planet from imperialist, multinational corporations who seek to destroy planet Earth and us along with it if we allow them. Come down to Gainesville and learn how to fight toxic prisons today. A pilot program for treating Louisiana prisoners addicted to opioids relies on a surgical implant that hasn't been tested in the U.S. The program was announced last week by the Louisiana DOC. The program is a product of a partnership between the Louisiana Department of Public Safety, DOC, and BioCorRx, the California medical company that makes the implant. The device, which is surgically implanted in prisoners addicted to opioids, releases the drug naltrexone, which is also used in Vivitrol shots. Louisiana DOC is basing this decision to introduce implants after having had success with Vivitrol as a medication-assisted treatment that fights opioid and alcohol addictions by blocking the effects and cravings for such drugs in patients who have been clean for at least seven days. The implant would work for about three to four months. BioCorRx offered Louisiana's DOC 10 surgical implants at no cost to the state. DOC said that they would be used on prisoners who volunteer for the treatment. There have been studies and tests on naltrexone implants in other countries, but none in the U.S. Critics say using a form of the drug 
that is not FDA approved and not tested for a captive population can be very problematic. This week, we return to our conversation with Zolo Azania, who was recently released after surviving decades on Indiana's death row. In the second part of this conversation, he talks about researching the death penalty and appealing his death penalty sentence. The efforts of Azania, his lawyers, and supporters helped to successfully get him off death row, and he was released in 2017. Azania also talks about how his feelings on race and politics change over time through these experiences. Here he is. With the rise of the hip-hop community or the hip-hop movement, there was a surge or a resurgence in a, of um, political consciousness. Uh, there was a resurgence of interest in Malcolm X, people like Malcolm X and Joyce Jackson. Uh, there was an interest in the anti-apartheid movement uh, in Southern Africa, as well as uh, uh, on the east and west coast of Africa in Mozambique and in uh, uh, Angola. Uh, those uh, movements had a lot to do with uh, helping to raise the level of consciousness also. And uh, people was wearing African medallions and things of this nature. Uh, the, the gang members had become had become uh, uh, splintered, where you had former former gang members or members who were in gangs who wanted to move in a different direction with more positive thoughts and ideas that were influenced by Malcolm X and George Jackson. They was they had become under, under attack, and. Uh, so I was able to analyze that, and then I began to write about it. I even wrote an essay, and I called it World Gangsters. And in that essay, I talked about uh, the American government and the political system. Uh, uh, the uh, invasion or the uh, CI wars, that were con secret wars that were conducted in South America and in the Middle East. Uh, uh, the wars between uh, the Palestinians and uh, the Israelis or the Zionists in uh, Israel. I talked about those things. I talked about the terminology used, gunboat diplomacy. Um, well, the word is I'm looking for, uh, trickle-down theory. Um, those, those words were used by the ruling class. When they say gunboat diplomacy, they mean to send the battleships over to different countries and uh, so they can uh, make way for IBM, uh, make way for Coca-Cola, uh, for Tech Pepsi, and McDonald's uh, corporations. So I would, I would tell these things to the younger prisoners, but I did it in isolation, but I was able to break that isolation by writing and smuggling it throughout the prison system. And uh, that was also successful. And many of this, the, the former gang members, some of them are my best friends now, and they're the, and they're the most principled uh, revolutionaries of conscious, forward-thinking people. One of them is uh, Shaka Shakur. And he was, he did, re he did real good, and he's, he still is. He still is. He had some problems, some personal problems. His son was killed, and he took, the, took it to heart. And he uh, kind of lost it, but he got himself together. Uh, I, I I I I realized what it was. 
and he saw what happened to his son of what he was involved in when he was in, uh, involved in a criminal activity. And I think that he felt guilt-stricken by it and that it came full circle and it, and it hit, hit it home. And I think that hurts more than anything else. So I withheld my criticism of him for that reason, because I understood. And there were many who did not understand until it happens to them. I took a personal hand in my appeals. I had began to study the law in 1976. And from, 19, from 1976 up to this day, I still study the law. But uh, the death penalty was new to me at the time. I did uh, anti-death penalty work around the case of uh, Gary Tyler in Louisiana. Uh, uh, I did, even though I didn't know much about it, I used to hear about it. There was a moratorium placed on the death penalty in 1967, I think. It held up to 1972 when the U.S. Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional of how it was, it was applied, not unconstitutional uh, that the death penalty was illegal. So in 1976, I think it was Greg versus Georgia in that case, uh, or Greg versus Furman. I'm not sure which one it is right now. It was one of them. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the, the death penalty was constitutional now and that the states can re, rewrite their laws and, and, and start using uh, uh, executions again. Well, there was a, a halt to it in 1976 where a case out of Florida made a, uh, where you had different attorneys who move, were movement attorneys. And now they'll have get involved with the death penalty because there were movement activists who were uh, facing execution, some were in exile, and so forth, uh, especially for BLA uh, prisoners. So the challenge was made, and I think the case was Profit versus Florida, but the Supreme Court rejected those arguments, uh, allowed uh, the state to go forward to executing the first prisoner in the United States since the moratorium was lifted. And that was uh, John Spinkelink, I think. That's his name. And uh, after that, uh, the, 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 the wheels were, were cranked up and the, and the engine was, was uh, in full swing. Well, I was released from prison in 1980. When I came back following the bank robbery case, and then it fast forward into the 1990s, I used I, I, I use those new ideas of, and way of thinking in my appeals. I kept my appeal connected to the movement and my, and my activities as political. I, I wasn't fighting my case on a criminal level. I wasn't fighting my case as a regular criminal appeal. I fought my case using the criminal law, fighting a political appeal, a political case. And I kept it tied to that. And in the 1990s, I received a measure of success on my appeal. In 1993, the death penalty was lifted off of, off of me. 
So but, uh, uh, we went through pretrial motions and uh, other court proceedings. So by 1996, uh, I was retraveling a death penalty, and the death penalty was, I was sent to the death again. So I got the death penalty twice. So from 1996 to 2000, because it took, well, I filed my appeal. My appeal was filed, uh, when did my appeal get filed? It was filed 1997. I think my appeal actually got filed. But the Indiana Supreme Court did not rule on my appeal for three years. So uh, in June of 2000, Indiana Court of Appeals denied my appeal. So I was able to, I was fortunate enough to, to obtain the legal services of move, some movement attorneys who was able to uh, pay for my defense out of their own pockets. And that was Michael Dorch and his wife, Erica Thompson. They had a friend named Jesse Cook in Terre Haute, Indiana. And she came in on my case uh, when she received a call from her friends that they needed her. They needed, because they, uh, Michael and Erica was not licensed to practice law in, in, in Indiana. Michael was uh, pra licensed to practice in Illinois and New York and I think Michigan, and Erica was licensed to practice in Illinois and uh, New York. So they needed an Indiana attorney who was familiar with the rules of the court here to come in on the case, and that's when Jesse got involved. Another attorney, uh, one of Michael and Erica's colleagues, John Stanthorpe, who has experience in, with death penalty cases, came in on, on the case and helped out. And they took my case and filed a collateral review. I had execution date set, and they was able to obtain an emergency stay of execution. I think it came down to like a, a week. And I got a little nervous at that point. I told Michael, let's, let's just go into federal court now, you know. But Michael said, no, we're not we're going to do it like this here. So I had his confidence. We went back to state court. And within state court, that's when we fought the state again but we challenged that the jury system which no other attorney would, would help me with it i just had a gut feeling and based upon a, a objective uh analysis of what i was seeing in the courtroom and what i was learning about the uh, the criminal injustice system as i call it something was wrong with this jury i had a list of of jury members names i can't remember how many it was it was maybe a hundred a few hundred people all of them had the same zip code. So I asked my attorneys about this, but they brushed it off like it wasn't important. Well, that jury was chosen from a list that had been read by the county. And they chose them same people over and over and over for 15 years. And the entire Black community, which was concentrated, was being called, being called the uh, inner city. Uh, it was more than 5,000, almost 6,000 names had been ex excluded. Well, I had, was able to become privy to this information based upon some newspaper articles and some investigative reporting that was done by an, uh, a writer uh, in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 
Allen County. I think his name was Mike Gray. He also analyzed and did an investigative reporting on the federal uh, jury system. So Michael, Erica, John, and Jesse Cook took those newspaper articles and they filed my appeal. Uh, uh, they filed, the, it wasn't an appeal, it was a request to make another collateral challenge on my death sentence to the Indiana Supreme Court, and they let me get in two issues. One was perjury of, of, a, of, the, of, the, of the police and another state witness and challenge, a challenge to the jury system. Uh, I won on the jury system. The challenge for the uh, perjury of a witness that was used to get me the death penalty. The Indiana Supreme Court found that witness uh, who recanted his, his testimony, said that, that, that the witness was not credible. But the witness was credible enough for me to get the death penalty, but not credible enough when he told the truth that the, pol he was, that the police scared him and told him, what, told him to identify me in the courtroom. Prosecutors told him to identify me in the courtroom. But just because James McNew could not remember the face of the police officer or, remember, don't know, or do even know the name, they said, well, since he don't know that, he don't, he's not credible. And well, anyway, I, 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 once I got the case overturned on the death penalty for the second time, the, the prosecutors was calling me a terrorist. They said I was a new African terrorist. Using the term new African, because I declared my citizenship and declared that I was a citizen of the Republic of New Africa and that the, uh, uh, the government did not have authority to uh, try me in this case as a criminal that I had the right to independence and the right to uh, have my human rights observed. So after when I done that, that was in 1982, during a trial in April 1982. When I did, did that, that's when the, 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 the terrorist uh, label was, was spread or uh, put on me and the prosecutors ran with it. So uh, my attorneys, I filed a petition to the Organization of American States uh, showing how I, I could never receive a fair trial in any court in the United States, uh, that my case was political, and, it, it, and uh, my case deals with human rights violations. And so at the time, Fidel Castro was the chairman of the uh, Organization of American States, which was the counterpart to the United Nations, they said, because the United Nations had become corrupt and that the rich and, and three the three main countries was uh, United States, China, and uh, uh, Russia were uh, dominating uh, the United Nations and, and, and no, the other countries were not recognized. They vote didn't, vote didn't carry any weight. So uh, they, they organized in South America. When Fidel Castro stepped down, Hugo Chavez took over. Well, we reached a compromise in, 19, in 2008. We reached a compromise, but I say we, my defense attorneys, and I, and the state uh, government, Indiana State uh, Prosecutor, that if they stop trying, stop uh, putting, trying to uh, make me out to be a terrorist or to prejudice me before the jury by using terrorist scare tactics, uh, then we would drop our petition and. Uh, International Court in South America. 
so they agreed. So they, they stopped using the terrorist label on me, and uh, we dropped our petition to the uh, Organization of American States. But shortly after that, uh, during the process of picking a jury for the third time, the prosecutors quit the case and said they didn't want to go any further. Uh, and that was how I was able to get off of death, get out of prison, get from under the death sentence, and subsequently my release. But uh, the deal that the prosecutors brought to me, I did not have to plead guilty to anything. All they wanted to do was ask that uh, I agreed to have my charges uh, split up where I, my time was running together, which, which, which was uh, 14 years and 60 years was running together. So really the 60 years ate up to 14 years. I only had 60 years to do. I had been already been locked up for more than 27 years when I was on death row. So I only had a few years to go before my release. And, but they wanted to hold me a little longer and, but I demanded that I be uh, able to go to federal court to fight my case. I'm not going to stop re uh, uh, fighting my case. Well, the state agreed to that. And I said, if they put it in writing, I'll accept it. So I accepted it, and I was released. But the prosecutors never told the public how that happened and what happened. How did I get out? They never told the public that. They just made their little statements that the case is over. They said that uh, they didn't have the money to continue prosecuting me and, and stuff like that but that's not what, what it was they was afraid that my attorneys and I was going to win this time around and that they could not bully my attorneys in the courtroom or out of the courtroom and uh, we, we was able to organize inside the courtroom inside the prison and on the streets uh, we had uh, support committees was formulated in Chicago, California, Mississippi, New York, Illinois. We were able to organize and we had uh, people who were contributing uh, funds for me to fight this case. Uh, also had uh, been able to organize overseas in Switzerland, England, Germany, especially in Germany and France. So now it's, it's growing even further. Uh, even though I dropped my petition to the Organization of American States, people in uh, Europe took it uh, further. They took it to the United Nations and they took it to the people in the streets. Uh, Amnesty International got involved, but the one in any the, the one in the United States uh, are not as was not as progressive. It was it was the uh, Amnesty International in Europe who put the pressure on. So I had uh, progressive and liberal, liberals as well, and just good people, period, who wanted to see justice done. Some even support the death penalty, but not for me because my case didn't warrant it once they learned what was going on. So about 20 different organizations filed a friend of the court brief called a Amiki brief, Amiki's Curie brief. Uh, so they filed a friend of the court because it had uh, public uh, uh, interest in my, in my case. Since they were citizens of the United States, they were taxpayers, and they were voters. And they had an interest in that this jury system be straightened out. So they filed a friend of the court brief, and it was growing just too fast and too much. And the state just said they didn't, they didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want this.
and they dropped the case. Uh, I was subsequently, uh, my habeas corpus petition was denied. I took it to the, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear it. Even the Seventh Circuit denied it. U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear it. So I just uh, went to school. I got a, a couple of time cuts, and I got out two years early. Now, since I was released, I'm still involved in the struggle. I'm still interested in helping people. I'm no longer interested in something, the, the, the issues being painted in black and white. I, I, uh, I criticize it, and I also change my language of uh, how I uh, describe things and put it in proper context because... Uh, saying racism is not the issue. Uh, prejudice, bigotry, bias for, sometimes bias against, that's the issue. And, you, and we only attach only one race, and that's the human race. You know, so uh, there are white people in my family. I had uh, became interested in uh, tracing my roots, and I've learned about other relatives in my family who are white, or will be called white. So if I'm against white people, I'm against my own family. You know, so we are all part of the human family. So and it's it's, it's confusing. So it, uh, the confusion helps the status quo. It benefits the status quo. This type of confusion and ignorance only hurts the rest of us who want to see a qualitative positive change made into this uh, society. It's one of the richest countries on earth. Not rich because it has those the, the most mineral resources, but it's rich because of its type of organization and uh, the, the the power over the mind of the people with paper money, which was invented by China. The paper money, you know, it's easy to carry a thousand dollars in your pocket than a thousand gold pieces. <laughs> well, where you couldn't couldn't carry it was too heavy, you know, but. Uh, Yes, and it, 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 it's, it's enough in this economy to feed the world. It's been shown. The United States fed Europe, rebuilt Europe. Why not feed the United States and, and the, the American people and rebuild America? That would be easy to do. You know, charity begins at home. So uh, the economy is, is important. The economy, at one time, uh, show you how ignorant I was. I thought economy was a woman working in the kitchen. I was in high school. So how did I get that thought in my head? I don't even, how? Well, I equated with what was promoted in the magazines, what was promoted in television and in the media, uh, advertisements with cooking, utensils, home appliances. You would see a woman with an apron somewhere in the kitchen in the home and he always said the word economy so in my backwards twisted way of thinking at the time I associated economy with a woman working in the kitchen <laughs> this has been Kite Line anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box Kite Line Radio P.O. Box 2422 Bloomington, Indiana 47402 you can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash kite line. 
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.